and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we look at our political institutions, how they're failing, and how we can fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America and a lecturer at the Johns Hopkins University. I'm Julia Azari. I am an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer at the Clemson University. So uh, I, I think we need to, to be more popular as a podcast. So we're, we're just going to try to focus on the thing that, that pulls well. Uh, and it's the thing that everybody's talking about uh, or has been talking about. Free beer. That, uh, free beer. Yes. Yes. If you subscribe to our podcast, you, you get free beer. Uh, just, just allow six to nine years for delivery. I, I actually, I was thinking about because I'm like a, a politics nerd, that, that Ezra Klein column about David Shore and the debate about his controversial uh, advice, or maybe not so controversial advice, for Democrats to focus on things that are popular and maybe talk more about economics and less about race. So I, I want to talk to you all about this because I think it raises a, a lot of really deep and difficult questions about our elections, our political institutions, our parties, and, and our democracy. So, Julia, can, can you kind of help us to understand why, why this column has struck such a nerve and, uh, and created such a, such a debate? I mean, maybe. Um, I, I want to start by saying I was a little I was a little flummoxed by the intensity of this debate. Maybe I shouldn't have been because obviously the issues at hand are really concerning. But I also am, I'm sort of confused about the way in which this sort of one pollster has managed to shape this debate. So I guess, you know, um, hats off to, to David Shore for being so effective at shaping a debate. I can only dream of that level of influence. And I'm, I'm not sure, you know, honestly, why this status would be conferred on anyone. But let me let me break down what I think is going on here. I think there's a really important piece of context to understand, which is that this is all happening in this broader conversation about what's going to happen in 2022 and 2024 in terms of the competition between the parties and the sense that the Republican Party is has been a minority party kind of durably for a long time and has intentions to to consolidate power if not to engage in some some pretty significant subversion of democracy. I think that's a widely held view from kind of the center of the political spectrum out to the left. And that, I think, forms this context of, well, you know, what are the Democrats doing wrong that they're going to screw this up and lose these elections and then American democracy is going to fall? I think that's the sort of broader conversational context. From there, it seems to me, based on the the interview that Ezra Klein did with with Shore and the kind of ensuing discourse, it seems like there's a couple of things. One is one is the question about whether you accept the premise of this at all, whether you accept the descriptive premise, which is that there's a major educational divide within the Democratic Party, such that certain kind of rhetoric that has been has been labeled in this discourse of kind of woke rhetoric, rather problematically, I think. Um, that certain kinds of, of racialized appeals are not only alienating to white non-college educated voters, but they're also losing non-white non-college voters. And that's a kind of significant part of that debate. So we, first of all, the question is, is that, is that a thing? Is that happening? And then the second question is, if it is happening, what to do about it? Um, and this gets into some pretty technical pieces of strategy. And if you go on to the New York Times website, the, the Klein article has like an interactive where you can look at the electoral implications for this. But, you know, it also speaks to um, to policy and to strategy. And so that, I think, is essentially what's going on. And some of the pushback has some of the pushback has been on the, the fact that a lot of Shores data can't be shared publicly. It's it's collected in, in private contexts for private clients, that there's countervailing data that some of which has been published at 538 and other other outlets suggesting that there are racial differences within the Democratic Party that don't line up with this educational story. Um, and some of which has been directed at, you know, what are what are the policy implications and are people really even paying attention? That's one of the things I think is really 
maybe has been most concerning to me is this question about how much are people even really listening to these fine-tuned messages and how are we over exaggerating the extent to which messaging and policy shape voting choices i would never bet against the importance of race in an electoral context but i think there's many different ways that that can be can play out politically and can be packaged by by different actors and we don't know a lot about which ones are are really genuinely um, able to shape behavior. So that's sort of, that's my take on the, the controversy. Thanks Lee for asking us to, um, to, to talk about this or asking us what we think about this. I mean, I, I, I know Ezra, I, I like Ezra. I'm fascinated by this debate, um, in general, but I'm, I'm kind of, you know, torn on, torn on it and torn on the reaction to it. But I, but I am pretty certain that it kind of reinforces my views overall as to why we get, I think, politics so wrong these days. But it's not a question of putting your finger in the air and seeing which way the wind is blowing, right? I think we can often put ourselves into like, you know, we can see people doing that and we're, we, can, we, can, we can easily ascribe behavior to that kind of um, activity. You know, you don't really care about stuff. You're just trying to see which way the wind is blowing. You wanna see what's popular. But, you know, underpinning this whole debate is the question of what is the dominant cleavage in American politics and what is representative democracy but a reflection of society, a reflection of the concerns of the people. And there are certain cleavages that kind of cut across our society. And for a long time, this is not a new debate. This goes back decades, is that there's been a question, especially on the left, of whether or not that cleavage is race or racial or whether or not it's economic. I mean, you can think of like the old kind of leftist Marxist, for instance, and I, you know, this idea of are issues best understood in terms of economic, in, in terms of an economic lens or this economic cleavage that divides people or in groups, or are they best understood by cultural, racial type um, uh, lenses and cleavages? And, and that's a very important question. It's a very important question. One, if our government is going to work as you know according to the voters' desires and, and wishes, and it not even and even more important than that, because I don't like that kind of factory mindset. If our government is going to adjudicate the claims of the people, because after all, that is what the government is there to do. It's there to pass laws, create policies, implement those policies, oversee those policies being implemented, and adjudicate disputes between private parties. Certainly, but I think just as important is the fact that people see their claims being adjudicated in that great crucible of conflict that we have up on Capitol Hill, which is the House and the Senate, which is Congress. And, and so I think putting things in this manner or putting things in this way and trying to say, okay, are we focusing on issues that, and I'm not sure Ezra's coming at this, and in fact, I know he's not coming at it from the same place I am. Um, and I don't think he actually agrees with me on this. Um, but you know, I, I don't I don't see a problem with that. But the outcome isn't that it's going to make it better and that Democrats are going to win more. And this is where I kind of part ways. And I'd like be anxious to see what you think. And I know we've discussed this in passing in the past. Throughout this article, throughout this debate, throughout, you know, the criticism of Shore and everything else, there's this notion that the Democratic Party is a mon is a is a is this like monolithic thing. It's a it's an entity. It's a it's a person. And there that's what it is. And we can figure it out. And the same thing with the Republican Party. Um, when in reality, you know, there are lots of different Republican parties. There's lots of different Democratic parties. There's lots of different Republicans. And even people, individuals have torn views on lots of different issues. And what happens when we try to reduce things down to these kind of, um, kind of black and white type comparisons is that we end up losing the nuance of, of American politics and we end up losing the kind of inherent nature, losing sight of the inherent nature of politics writ large, which is we're not building tables here. We're not building furniture here. We can't kind of sit down and draw a blueprint and say, this is what's gonna work and this is what's not gonna work because it's the activity itself that is the point, not the piece of furniture, not the widget that comes out in the end. And we talk about this as in, if only we could figure out how to design a widget that we could then put on TV and then the people could see that widget and say, oh, we like that widget. We're gonna let you keep control of the factory. But that is a completely wrong way, I think, to think about politics. Well, James, I, I think you raise a number of important points here. Uh, uh, one, you know, start, starting from your, your last point about the 
idea of the Democratic Party being a singular entity uh, that will have some sort of universal message discipline, right? I mean, I think that that's obviously wrong. I mean, to some extent, there is sort of this network of campaign consultants who are all going to run ads on the same basic themes in the 2022 midterms. And, you know, there is an extent to which you know, Biden, some extent, can kind of set the terms of what the Democratic Party is focusing on. Uh, but, you know, uh, I mean, if the Republicans are going to message on critical race theory, that's not something that like that Biden is talking about or Schumer or Pelosi are talking about. You know, if they want to talk about Ibrahim Kendi, you know, he's not a Democratic politician. He's a he's an academic who's written a very popular book, but it's not like Democrats are proposing having a department of anti-racism. So I think it creates a challenge uh, for parties because they are these sort of loose coalitions that with that don't control uh, what everybody in their coalition, including those who are out of office, uh, get to say. Now, I, I want to kind of roll this back and talk about the, the broader historical context of the moment that we're in. Now, when you talk about the kind of broadly two dimensions, one economic policy and two kind of racial identity, national story, culture, politics. Uh, you know, and if you went back to the 1950s, 1960s, you'd see that American politics was mostly a contest over you know, the size of government with uh, the racial dimension suppressed. Of course, that created an environment in which the Jim Crow regime was allowed uh, to, to flourish in the South. And only once the civil rights bills of, of the, the 60s came to pass with uh, broad bipartisan support, did that racial dimension kind of elevate? And you know, over a long period of time, American politics has basically realigned uh, much more to be a conflict over national identity and race and and culture uh, and and geography. Uh, there's a sort of urban versus rural identity in American politics, and you know it's very hard to escape that. That that is the central structure of our partisan conflict, and no amount of messaging on infrastructure you know, or you know healthcare. It is really going to to break through that. Uh, I mean, there's a there's a, a slice of the Republican electorate who is much closer to the Democratic Party on economic policy than to the Republican Party. But that slice of the electorate is also very concerned about uh, this kind of cultural imperialism as they see it on the on the left and this fear that that you know, their their status is going to be undermined in society by this uh, democratic coalition of woke cosmopolitan globalists. And Lee, can I can I just interject? Sorry to real quick. I just want to ask a question because I, one of the things that I find interesting and this gets to our institutions, which I think you may be taking us to next, is that how our politics plays out allows for these different groups of people to agree and disagree on different issues over the course of a period of time. And if you think of things like the New Deal, I mean, the New Deal is a great irony, as Ira Katzenbaum has shown us, that, I mean, Katz Nelson has shown us that, you know, in his book, Fear Itself, which is fabulous, which is that a lot of the New Deal is propelled forward by the and a lot of Roosevelt's efforts to win this war against totalitarianism and bigotry overseas is propelled forward by Southerners who say, but you don't touch what we're doing in the South with regard to segregation. And so they're able to form these weird ad hoc coalitions and they're able to kind of vote on certain bills at certain times. Whereas when we think about politics today, it's like, OK, you have to agree all to slate A or all to slate B. And and then if you can't, we're hopelessly gridlocked. And I think that's where I'm kind of coming from. I don't, I don't disagree with you in terms of the differences, but I just say, think you can agree with someone on an economic issue in the bill before you, the vote before you can relate to economics and you can vote for it, or you can agree on something else. Um, it, but we have to have that fluidity get back into our system. Well, that's uh, exactly, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, you're, you're singing my song, make politics multidimensional again. But to, to do that, we, we need to break out of the, this hyper-partisan two-party system to have more potential flexible coalitions that can form on different issues. So, I mean, that's the broader 
thing. Uh, you know, I will say just on the Democrats' dilemma is that they can't. You know, I think I think the reality is they can't escape being in this uh, politics in which race and culture are the central issues. So rather than trying to kind of back down from that, I think there's a, a, a certainly a, a story and a conversation that Democrats can tell in which, you know, there, there are ways to talk about immigration, talk about racial justice that are broadly popular and you know, having an honest conversation about some of these issues rather than trying to, to walk away from them and say, well, that, that you know, that, that doesn't work well for us. Politics is about conflict. And the conflict of race and identity are emotional uh, conflicts. And so, you know, you, I mean, I guess to, to James, your point, if we can complicate some of these conflicts and make people think a little differently and you know, maybe even open up a few different dimensions within the, the, the racial justice and immigration and, you know, masking and school curriculum conversations, you know, maybe we can see some progress. But I think the, you know, the the backing away from those conflicts for Democrats means that, you know, they're allowing the opposition to define the conflict in a way that is incredibly polarizing. And these are these are the central conflicts that we have to work through. So we we can't just not work through them. But I I, want to kind of bring this uh, to a, a second point, which is kind of buried in that in the piece, but I think maybe more important, which is the Senate. And, you know, that a lot of this is motivated by the fact that Democrats are at a disadvantage in the Senate. There's a stat in the piece that, you know, suggests Democrats could win 51 percent of the two party vote in the next two elections and end up with only 43 seats in the Senate, uh, which, you know, certainly Republicans are at a significant advantage in winning the Senate because the Senate overrepresents rural conservative parts of the country. So uh, how much of this is really just a just a debate about the problems with the Senate? Julia? Yeah, I really want to weigh in on this. I have a couple things I want to say about the previous segment, though, too. So I, I want to talk about the Senate. I want to link that up to some bigger questions about democracy. And then I want to uh, slide into the 19th century and respond to some of what James was saying about the New Deal also. So settle in. First off, I think the Senate is a good place to start this set of questioning because that is exactly true. Um, We really wouldn't be having any of these conversations if we had majoritarian institutions. And I know that there are good reasons you know, there are reasons that people sincerely hold, um, I should say, I don't know that I think they're any good. There are sincerely held objections to majoritarian institutions. I'm not saying that there aren't. But the, the reality is, we have institutions that dramatically distort the relationship between votes and seats. And Lee, this is really your, your area. But, you know, straightforwardly, I think as we're talking about fundamental questions about how to, how to reserve uh, or how to preserve American democracy, and how to um, you know, what what the danger, how to respond to the dangers. I think we have to continue to think about that, which is we have a situation in which we are sorted, as the two of you have have mentioned. Um, we have a situation in which the two sides have consolidated around different kind of broad ideological points, and in which one side has a durable but small majority and has a kind of consistent problem turning that into a political majority. And the other side isn't just a a very assertive minority party, which would be one thing. I think that's sort of what we see in the George W. Bush years is an assertive minority party, but is a minority party that seems really, really determined to consolidate its power and to delegitimize the opposition. That's, I mean, that's the situation. And so all the conversation about like, are we saying Latinx? Are we talking about race too much is these are important questions from a preservation of democracy standpoint, they're window dressing. But to kind of transition and, and to some extent contradict what I just said, we also have a sort of additional threat that's, an, I think, informing that, um, that, that attempt to consolidate power. And that 
is this, you know, I think the way you had said it, Lee, really illustrates it. You said, we're not Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Democrats who hold real power. No one is proposing that we have a department of anti-racism. And I think your, your implicit premise there that this would be seen as a kind of overly woke and problematic thing to do is is probably right, that this would cause a great deal of controversy. We're Right now, we're recording this on October 15th, um, and we've just, uh, Twitter has been embroiled in this situation in which Texas, some Texas school district has told teachers that they have to have books that talk about both sides of the Holocaust. This has been backtracked, but good God, right? So this is sort of where we're at, is that... Wait, what's the other side of the Holocaust? <laughs> Well, exactly, Lee, exactly. This was, no one, no one was clear on this. And the school district, the best I've seen, I've sort of been half-heartedly following this on Twitter because I only have so much mental space for shit shows at this point. But um, is, is that the school district has backtracked, but there's a recorded phone call talking about teachers being terrified and this sort of thing that's going on in, in K through 12 education, which is this, this, really strong backlash against anything that points to talking about anti-racism, talking about historical instances of racism, of bigotry, of uh, apparently of mass genocide. Um, and so if this is the, if this is the extreme position, if, if having a governmental initiative against and that embraces anti-racism is too woke to handle, then that might be empirically true, but then we need to take a step back and think about what is going on in this democracy and what it means for people to be in a multiracial democracy. And on some level, either you're in or you're out. That, that I think, is the, the sort of the essence of what has pissed me off about this debate. And I'm just realizing this now as I'm talking and the second cup of coffee is hitting, which is that ultimately it's, it's an effort to triangulate around the question of, are you in on multiracial democracy or not? Is, okay, Democrats should be in on that, is, is certainly the argument that, that Shore makes. He's not arguing that multiracial democracy is a bad thing, but that they should do it in a way that, that's de-emphasizing the messaging is quiet, um, that is mostly done through, through, through policy, as if this is automatically going to happen when Democrats are in power. Um, and I don't think you can triangulate that at this point. This gets me to, and I think that it's maybe it's better in the long term, maybe also in the short term, to force people who who clearly can't come to terms with multiracial democracy to own that position, because I think they are, I think they are not the entirety of the Republican Party. I think that there are a lot of people in the center that are have not reconciled themselves to what that's going to entail. But I think that most people in this country have hold that as a as a value, um, and they want to get there, even if it's going to take some time. Um, but letting the people who are I'm still talking though, sorry. I know I'm I'm ra- rambling on, but I have a third point, and you just have to let me get to my third point. <laughs> so this I want to respond to what James was was saying about the New Deal, which gets to what I'm saying here about letting people who oppose multiracial democracy, even though they're a minority, run the show. That's essentially what happened through a lot of this period in the the Democratic Party from like the 30s through the 60s. Um, But the New Deal period, I think, is also not our, is not our analog. This is a period in which the South at that point, by the 1930s, has had a good amount of time to sort of settle in the post-Civil War order. And what you have in that, in that instance, the Southern Democrats who want to preserve that order and they want to preserve what was restored in this more violent period in the 19th century after the civil war people are just like really frenzied about basic steps toward multiracial democracy and i think our current period is more more resembles that that reconstruction era frenzy anti anti-racism frenzy than it does the new deal period Okay, I am now done with my rant, and I'm putting myself on mute. James, I, I want to ask you a very specific question, building on what Julia said, which is not to not to speak for all conservatives or all Republicans, but you know, h- how do we how do we get on board with a with a multiracial, multiethnic democracy? I mean, uh, are are liberals caricaturing the extremism on the right? 
uh, in ways that are destructive and unhelpful. Um, well, I will gladly assume the mantle and the voice of American conservatism for the next minute and a half. No, I think it's a question that gets back to uh, this fundamental concern I have, which is when we generalize, when we make things more abstract, which I do more than anyone else, I admit, um, it, it becomes very difficult to get a sense of reality because there is a long... You know, if, if you ask me about conservatism with a small C, traditional conservatism, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about Flannery O'Connor. I'm thinking about Ray Bradbury. I'm thinking about Russell Kirk. I'm thinking about people whose intellectual thought embraces the sheer diversity of individuality in this nation and in this world in a way that at the time, certainly Marxist uh, intellectual uh, thought didn't do. Right. It's much more of a it loses sight of the individual. Uh, it tries to, you know, it, it puts us in individuals into categories. And the only thing, the only fundamental thing that individuals have in common with one another, the only thing that we share, the only way that we are all equal is that we are all different. That's it. And so, and I think there is a strand of conservative intellectual thought uh, that, that recognizes that in a way that the left doesn't. Now, the conservative intellectual movement today is in a very bad place. And I think it's because, in fact, it's, it's, the, it's the other side of the coin in many respects of the progressive intellectual movement. And when we say things, and I'm not, and, and Julia, I'm just going to riff on what you were just saying here, but when we say like, you know, we're either in or out, you know, the question is not, how do you answer that question? The answer is, what does that mean? Who decides what in or out means? Where do they decide it? And how do they decide it? And Unfortunately, both sides delegitimize the opposition these days. Look, I think it's dumb to talk about critical race theory. I think I, I I don't think it has a lot of relevance right now to what's happening. But I also don't think it's the end of the world. It's not it's not destroying America, and it's also not talking about it. it's not destroying America. And it's like this: both sides have this hypersensitivity to anything that they can seize on to try to delegitimize their opponents, as opposed to talking about issues in a very rich and multi-contextual and nuanced way that I think is going to meet people where they are. And you know, when we talk about consolidating power. Yeah, both sides are trying to consolidate power, but the great irony of this whole thing is that they can't use it when they get it because the two sides are just a whole bunch of individuals who disagree with one another on a lot of different things. And, you know, when we talk about the Senate, if the Senate were to be elected by proportional representation, uh, you know, it may be different. It may not be different. Right now, the Democratic senators and Republican senators are acting the exact same way. They're acting the exact same way. And so it, that tells me that if the new senators act like the old senators do, then the Senate's going to act the exact same way. And the problem isn't what the Senate's doing. The problem is that the Senate's not doing anything at all. It's just a glorified HR agency. And if you want to get back to a time where the Senate can do a lot of the stuff, look, one of the most extraordinary periods of lawmaking, of legislative productivity in this nation's history was in the 1960s and 70s, as Julia says. They did a lot of really controversial stuff, a lot of very difficult stuff. It was also a time where they were at their, some of their most divided and it was some of the most intense periods in this nation where violence seemed to lurk just around the corner. And like that's we if you want to get back to that, you need people who think about politics differently. You don't just need to change who's on top with somebody else who's on top, because this whole notion of top and bottom ruler and ruled completely distorts the whole fabric of American politics and how I think our political system operates. And so, yeah, if you want the best way to run bigots out of the conservative movement or the Republican Party is to shine a light on them, give them an opportunity to talk and let everybody see how crazy they are. That's the best way. But you got to let a process play out and you got to let people be their their own enemy in that scenario. And if somebody says critical race theory, you can't take the Twitter, you can't go on the national television, you can't have people on the floor of the Senate calling this person, like say this person doesn't deserve to participate in politics. This person doesn't do that. Because once we assume the right to say who can and cannot participate in politics, then we're ascribing to ourselves the power of a ruler and we're no longer doing politics. And we're in essence doing what we're accusing the other side of wanting to do. James, I, I agree with you that the 60s and 70s were a very different time in which we passed a lot of legislation, uh, some of it controversial, difficult. But uh, politics was very different because the, the uh, divisive issues were 
issues that cut across the parties rather than reinforce the differences uh, between the two parties. So you had a period in which half of the senators were elected from states that voted for the other party for president. You know, there there were a lot of states with split delegations. There were liberal Republicans. There were conservative Democrats. And you had like a, you know, a multi-party system within our system. And so there was no one, uh, you know, collapsed single dimensional cleavage dividing politics. And that created possibilities. So it's not the failure of people to 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 act. I mean, you, you put it I mean, you really put a lot of responsibility on the 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 individuals but in the the current system uh, the the actors are are constrained by their ability to to get reelected by the the kind of nature of the coalitions and you know the uh, so i i mean i i just you know all, all this waxing nostalgia is is fine but if we don't have a plan for getting uh, getting something that is fluid and multidimensional, then we're just tilting at windmills and telling people uh, uh, to act. And uh, I'll transition to a, a second point here and bringing it back to this this kind of popularism debate, which is that in uh, our, our you know discussions over what Democrats should or shouldn't do, you know, th- there's also these kind of other structural factors in midterm elections, which is that. You know, there, there's this kind of thermostatic public opinion uh, in which, uh, you know, the kind of marginal swing inattentive voters always tend to move against the party in power and the party in power tends to suffer from a, from an enthusiasm gap. And so, you know, it, it may not matter what the messaging is, in which case then, you know, the, the question that Democrats should ask themselves is, well, you know, what do we want to what what is the longer term change that we want to uh, push push forward in this country? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm curious, Julia, what your thoughts are on sort of the you know, role of 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 parties kind of building and changing the long term debate is. Yeah, that's a good I mean, that's a good question. And I think this is where some of what you're saying and what James is saying kind of meet up, which is James says, you know, we have to kind of let a process play out. And your work has sort of pointed to the idea that all the political incentives in the process are point toward this kind of chaos. I've been thinking a lot about this and I've been thinking a lot about the the tendency for big tent parties to not only try to kind of triangulate, but also to let the, let the people who have the most reservations about multiracial democracy kind of drive the process. And that's something we see, we're seeing over and over again in, in American history. So, I mean, I just, I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm really stuck thinking about what, what parties should do for one. I mean, I think one of the things that's happening in the democratic party, one of the things I forgot to do in my long rant a second ago was to flog my own work. I had a piece in, in 538 that came out on, I think on October 5th, um, sometime last week, about the divisions within the within the Democratic Party. And I kind of came to this basic conclusion of, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how, how deep they are. On the one hand, I think you can envision a really kind of fundamental rift between Democrats on preservation and, you know, how much of the system they think is okay and need to need to just be sort of improved and tweaked. And a growing faction of Democrats who think and whose constituents think that a lot of the system needs major overhaul. And I think those that constituency, that latter constituency, is not exactly agreed on how they would prioritize race, economic restructuring, and the intersection between the two. I think there's a bunch of different views within that, within those constituents and within those leaders, um, among those leaders about those issues. So I think that's something going on. But I do think that that those ideas are fundamentally different than, frankly, than a lot of the people who hold power in the Democratic Party right now. The second thing that I pointed out, which I think will will ultimately be an important feature of the Democratic coalition, is that the divisions are are actually quite cross-cutting inside the party, which is to say that some of the progressive representatives um, who have kind of held the line on some some elements of the the current the legislation that the reconciliation bill and such that's being considered right now some of them represent 
really diverse districts. Uh, some of them represent fairly white suburbs. Some of them represent highly educated districts. Some don't. And the same is true for the for the moderates, at least in the House. There actually isn't really a cross-cutting cleavage. And I think this, to take it back to, to our original topic, um, to take it back to the shore topic, I think that some of that discourse has has obscured the cross-cutting nature of intra-party cleavages and sort of said, look, you know, education's the big divide. And, you know, people across different racial groups on either side of the educational divide have really different viewpoints about woke language and teaching critical race theory in elementary school, which is a thing that is not happening. Um, and those types of questions. Um, and I think that the, the intra-party cleavages are not that neat. I, I don't know how this plays out among Republicans, but I suspect that that is also true. I suspect that if we conceptualize the Republican Party cleavage as one in which you know people are kind of on board with Trumpism and consolidation of power and um, really abandoning racial multiracial democracy and one in which people are at least have reservations about those ideas, I think that those folks probably actually represent a similarly patchwork nature of um, a array of districts. I think that the, those are probably not as neatly divided along educational lines as some people might think or along other types of um, divisions within the Republican coalition, religious, um, to the extent that there's there's racial diversity, gender diversity. So I, I think that that kind of shapes where parties are going on this. But where what that means, I just don't know, because we don't have, I think, enough really um, systematic work on on intra-party cleavages in contemporary American politics. There have been some good papers about it since 2016, but I think we don't know nearly as much about this as we do about the kind of issue of cross-cutting cleavages between the two parties as we do within them. I think those are all, you know, really insightful points. And, you know, I think it's some of the old political science work. Parties, you know, which we lost sight of is that, you know, parties, the echo and paraphrase what Julia's saying, though, kind of is that they live off disagreements in society, right? More than any other part of our government system, our governing system, parties reflect those disagreements in society. Those societies are obviously going to impact and shape our parties and how they operate. And kind of connecting that with what Lee, uh, what you just said about the system not allowing for fluidity, I'm not sure it's because the system has fundamentally changed, but it's that our, because our parties live off these disagreements in society, they're doing it in a different way today. They're doing it to kind of control the factory, as I've said. It's a very electoral-centric focus because they're no longer um, they're no longer using those disagreements to engage in kind of politics in our institutions. I mean, they're not. I mean, the Senate, for all intents and purposes, is dead. It doesn't. It, once senators stop using the institution for the purposes for which it was created, the institution no longer exists. It can come back. But the senators, the Senate is basically dead. The House is, you know, a little bit better, but not great. Our separation of power system is completely defunct because we think that nine guys in robes or nine guys and girls in robes get to make all the decisions in our society. That fundamentally is at odds with the doctrine of separation of powers. Federalism is all well and good, but when the when nine people have the right to decide and to set the, the limits of where the federal government can go, well, then Federalism is out the door, right? All of these dispersed powers, all of these different institutions that we have to basically make it safe for us to give the federal government more power while protecting ourselves against majority tyranny, against rule, against rule in any form. Those are they're they're crumbling around us. And and we then say, well, why can't we have compromise? Well, you need to participate in politics. And politics is an activity, it allows for information to expand our horizon of what is possible or to restrict it. It reconciles us to the limits of our own reality, oftentimes. But it fundamentally, and this is why I'm an optimist at heart, I don't, it fundamentally confronts us with the individual, our own individual nature, the people that vote for us, right? The, and we get an idea and we try to put them all together, or our opponents, for that matter. And when we lose, when we don't do politics, right? When we don't do politics, we lose sight of the individual we lose sight of this fundamental element of compromise. This is the ground in which compromise is seated because it is the ground where effort is required. You gotta work. Martin Luther King has to work hard out in, civil, in committing civil disobedience to try to change individuals 
not Republicans, individuals' minds on this fundamental issue of civil rights by confronting them with the reality that other individuals are facing. That's what passes the Civil Rights Act of 1964 when he's able to finally, through news, and we've had discussions about this in past podcasts, tap into this Midwestern element that wasn't really concerned with it. But then all of a sudden the individual element comes in and it starts to move things. Politics is what allows individuals to 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 overcome opposition. Once you realize that the veto is not a, a the the filibuster is not a veto that you can only stand up and talk for so long because you're an individual, you've become much more likely to compromise. And the other side becomes much more likely to put you in a tough position to force you by circumstances to compromise, right? And then when you see the individual, you see effort and then you also get understanding. And this is something else that Dr. King would talk a lot about. You get understanding. Understanding is what is absolutely vital. And this reminds me of this little, I can have an anecdote, but I think it's important because when I say understanding, I'm not meaning that we all have to agree. And I think when we talk about issues like race or economics, it's like, well, the other side's wrong and only until they agree with me are they going to be right. And sometimes you can agree to disagree. And sometimes you can agree with some, disagree with someone and still have empathy for that person. I'm reminded of a, a dinner I had in my former life with a couple. And the, the gentleman was discussing um, abortion policy and was talking about how awful it was and how terrible it was. And he's very pro-life, right? You know, these are conservative people, very pro-life. And, and how it just, and it was just, it was all in kind of very general macro level type, um, you know, discussions. No individuals, it's just abortion and these faceless people who have abortions and they're killing babies, et cetera. It's bad. His wife, on the other hand, uh, starts talking about it in a different way. And she actually took issue with them. And it was a very enlightening moment for me because she criticized them and, and scolded them a little bit. She was, a, and she was just as pro-life as he was. She wanted to uh, overturn Roe v. Wade just as much as he did. But as part of her um, kind of um, philanthropic activity, she would, you know, she participated in these organizations that would go into people's houses that would sit down with mothers who were considering or expectant mothers or pregnant women who were considering having an abortion. And she would talk to them and she would listen to them and she, she would hear about their story and she would hear about the challenges they face. And she would hear about the situation that led to the pregnancy. And she would hear about all these other things that shape that individual. And in hearing about all those things, she began to understand, not to agree. She didn't agree, but she began to understand and she began to empathize. And that, when you do that, our politics takes on a different tenor, it takes on a different tone, and it becomes slightly, slightly more, if not a lot more, constructive. And I don't think that, you know, this is gonna like, oh my God, we're all gonna wake up and we're gonna agree. No, and we shouldn't. Mad James Madison tells us in Federalist 10, that the way we talk about politics right now is wrong. I think Madison got a lot of stuff wrong. I don't think he got this wrong. There are no two sides in our, whether it's North and South, whether, you know, there was a time where it was slave and free, but, you know, there's no Democrat, Republican, monolithic majorities that can kind of take over everything. But the only way that we can approximate that in our minds is if we just completely eradicate the individual from American politics. And I think that is, that's the fundamental tragedy of the moment we're in. And until we get back to this other kind of, kind of way of looking at politics as an activity, not a, a production process. I think we're not going to be able to get there. And so, yeah, I agree with you Ali, on a lot of the problems. I agree with you on the system doesn't allow for fluidity, but I don't think it's the system. I think it's the individuals in the system that are that are allowing it to work in the way it does. Nobody's, the system doesn't make the, the, the Supreme Court, the Zeus sitting up on Mount Olympus with the lightning bolt looking down at the plains of Troy saying who's going to live and die. It's the people in the system saying, Supreme Court, please take this lightning bolt, throw it down at us, smite us, because we don't want to do it ourselves, because that's hard work, right? And so I think all we have, to, I mean, it's in many respects, it's a lot more daunting, but it's also a lot more um, kind of encouraging and hopeful, if you think about it, the, the situation we're in. Well, I mean, sure, it's the people in the system, but the system also allows for some people to get elected and other people not to get elected. Liberal Republicans from New England can't get elected. Conservative Democrats in the South or the Plains states can't get elected. And also certain people select into politics. You read Daniel Thompson's work on how moderates are selecting out of politics because they don't want to run, or Andy Hall's work on who runs for Congress. All of this tells us that, the, that given the, the nature of the, the current partisan conflict, you're, you're selecting in certain types of people who want 
to uh, engage in this particular type of partisan conflict because that's the conflict that that the system supports and then it reinforces and then further selects people who who have kind of cross-cutting uh, ideologies out and it becomes uh, a kind of doom loop. Uh, now, the other point that I, I want to talk about here, riffing on what you said about everything is focused on winning elections uh, yeah, absolutely. And our uh, fr- friend of the pod, Perry Bacon, had a, a great column in the Washington Post that I recommend everyone read, uh, uh, making the point that every day is not election day. Uh, but when you have this closely contested majoritarian system in which you have two parties who are both within you know, spitting distance of getting that elusive permanent majority, even if they can't use it because of all the checks and balances and counter-majoritarian aspects of our system, as well as divisions within the party, the allure of that is really tempting. And perhaps more importantly, the fear of the other side getting that total power uh, is, you know, so central. So that, I mean, in this whole debate, as Julia talked about, uh, over you know what Democrats should do, it's this idea that well, if Democrats lose the next election, then democracy is finished. So of course, elections become central because everything hinges on the ability of Democrats or Republicans to win the next national election. But this is you know again, this is a function of a majoritarian, binary, polarized, winner-take-all, two-party system. And you know we, we just you know if anybody was paying attention to the German elections. You know, the the center left party won Merkel uh, defeating, you know, Merkel's center right party had been the the leading party at about, you know, but the center left party now is slight, you know, got a won the election and by one they got, you know, 26 percent. But the center left candidate, you know, was basically running as the as the heir to, to Angela Merkel. Uh, and you know, the coalition will be pretty similar. So although there was very high turnout because every vote counts in Germany, unlike in our system, you know, it was a somewhat boring election because elections are not the central action in German politics. It's governing because the, the coalition is going to be pretty similar regardless. And you know the, the politics takes place after the election. Uh, in our system, majoritarian, winner take all, everything is focused on winning the next election. So, of course, everything is focused on the election and winning the election and nothing is focused on the compromise of, of governing. So, I, I mean, to, to me, that's the central point of this debate is that we're having this debate over, you know, this nice edge politics. And the people who decide it are, you know, the low propensity voters, you know, low engagement swing voters who are just kind of anti-system, you know, are always sort of voting throughout the bums. And this is a hell of a way to run a democracy. Uh, So uh, so let's do a final final takes on this, Julia and James, and, and then and then we'll conclude. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with some of your basic systemic critiques. And I want to make my final comment in a somewhat different direction, which is that I think that, again, this this sort of shore discourse is in some ways still linked to a notion of moderation that, you know, Ezra makes a point in his article that it's not just about moderation, it's about embracing economic progressivism. But on some level, this is always like our debates always come down to being too extreme versus being moderate. And I think that what's happening right now is that the the significance, the meaning of what it is to be a moderate has really changed a lot. And so, so one of the things that we need to do and thinking about these debates is really start questioning these ideological labels and recast in terms of how we how different political actors are oriented toward legitimate opposition and multiracial democracy and to start there and to not have a debate that assumes that we are kind of in a fully functional good faith democracy context when when we're just not. Yeah, I think that's a really great insight Julia and I want to I just want to pick up on the moderation piece and say that, um, and kind of expand it a little bit. I mean, you can have different temperaments, of course, but you know, I, moderation on policy is not something that we choose on the front end, right? It's not. It's not something I, I think, correctly speaking, that we say, okay, I'm going to wake up this morning and I'm going to be a moderate on healthcare policy. You have certain views, and you're elected to pursue those views. You're adjudicating the views of your constituents that they may be very deeply held, right? It, moderation to me 
to the extent that we're equating it some loosely with compromise, with this idea of not being fanatical, not being an outlier, not being extreme, not refusing to compromise. Moderation in that sense is something that emerges out of the process. And it is something that emerges because you feel like you have to, because uh, you feel like you can't go on anymore, because you lost, or and you're reconciled to the outcome, or because new, new information arose along the way that allows you to see your opponents in a different light and to hear their arguments in a different voice. And so I think the fundamental problem is that the system, and I agree with Lee and with you, Julia, a lot of this stuff, is that the system isn't, for whatever reason, isn't forcing that kind of activity. It's not allowing for um, our politics to be a crucible of conflict. And so we don't see any moderation in the outcomes. And I think that that's, you know, we also don't see a lot of outcomes, incidentally. Um, and that's a whole different topic for a whole nother day. But, um, but no, it gives me a lot to think about. Yeah, well, well, I think that that that's got to be our next episode because I, I mean I think you know Julia, that's an incredibly important point that that we have these labels and descriptors that describe an earlier era of politics and, and we don't even have a language to talk about what what's happening in our politics now. So we use these terms that that meant mean something very different. Uh, and and James, you know, I, I think it's such an important point that moderation comes out of the process that, you know, there's this whole school of political reform that says, oh, we just need to elect more moderates and then things will work out. But, you know, I, I think you're flipping that on its head. And I, I share that, that, no, we need to elect more people all over the political spectrum. And then, you know, the outcome is is where moderation is it's not in it's not it's not the quality of individual representatives but it's the quality of a uh, political institutional structure so i i i think we'll do an we got to do a a whole episode on this right well this has been another episode of of politics in question uh, and we'll talk to you all again next time thank you for listening to politics in question the show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.